Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back as we palpate the pulse of science. I'm Patrick Ruby and we're launching into the science athletics. We'll hop from science to policy on climate change. We'll skip from science to economics to analyse the global financial crisis. And we'll jump straight into the space station to get some solar power for California. But first up, Here's the news with Victoria Bond. A solar-based startup called Solarin may be supplying electricity to Fresno Country in California starting as soon as 2016. The design is ambitious. Huge solar power satellites would orbit at 22,000 miles above the equator to gather sunlight. Then, they'd convert the photic energy into radio waves, which the satellites would beam down to a receiving station in Fresno County. Designers say the beam would have about one-sixth of the intensity of noon sunlight, but it wouldn't be harmful to people, wildlife, or planes because the beam would be spread out over such a large area. If completed, the project would supply 1.2 to 4.8 gigawatts of power, day and night, regardless of the weather, at prices comparable to other renewable energy sources. But getting the project off the ground, literally, will cost more than $2 billion. So far, Solarin has raised an undisclosed sum from private investors. In other Californian news, the world's largest laser was recently given the green light to begin a series of experiments. The National Ignition Facility, which has been built over the last 15 years at a cost of over $3.5 billion, is a stadium-sized facility which is able to train 192 laser onto tiny targets. Researchers are hoping that the huge temperatures and pressures created within the controlled environment could yield the first-ever self-sustained stable fusion reaction, which should create more energy than the energy required to trigger the reaction to begin with. Clouds predict earthquakes in Iran by the end of April. Scientists in China are using unusual cloud formations to detect earthquakes weeks in advance. According to the researchers, the pressure that builds up in the rocks before an earthquake causes electromagnetic disturbances which influence cloud formation overhead. The scientists use satellite images to look for early warning signs of tectonic stress. While the researchers claim to be able to predict the location and force of the quakes to come, the exact date is more difficult to pin down. But will the theory work? We'll just have to wait and find out. Sponging resistance away from bacteria. Researchers at North Carolina State University are studying sea sponges to see how they're able to protect themselves from from bacteria, despite having no immune system and no ability to move away from infections. They noticed that, while almost all the organisms in the Caribbean Sea were covered in bacterial accumulations called biofilms, sea sponges, called Agelis conifera, seem to be spared. Biofilms are bacteria waste products which allows germs to form a shield to protect themselves against antibiotics. For example, biofilms coat our teeth. They're thought to be responsible for up to 80% of the world's bacterial infections. The scientists found that sea sponges prevent biofilms 
from forming thanks to a chemical called algiferin, which is not toxic to mammals. Algeliferin does not kill the biofilms outright, but reverts the bacteria back to its single-celled form, which is susceptible to common antibiotics. So far, every target biofilm has been successfully destroyed by the chemical, and scientists are hopeful. Ian Wolfe, from science to economics, to analyse the global financial crisis. So, Geoffrey Bolche, you're an economist studying a PhD in law at the University of New South Wales. What is economics? All right, economics is basically how to use existing physical resources, basically land, labour and capital, to respond to human needs basically individual or the society's needs so so if it fails to do that role then it fails as a science its few misrepresent the perception of what land is for capital is for and labor is for you can get the wrong results altogether basic problems in economics deals with uh, how would you treat land labor and capital in its proper context to deliver the right results would you say if a government provides jobs that will afford them decent incomes and stable prices and certain lifestyle has it has the economist done its job some would say yes but as a social science is that all there is to a society jobs stability of prices uh, a level of income like in some totalitarian states they'll say we're good because we provide jobs we provide decent incomes there's no unemployment so why should you complain if you violate your human rights? That's where the science is put to question. In the same way, if physical sciences can be used to oppress, economics can be used to oppress. And that's why we have to go back to the very basic premises of what economics is about, the proper perception of land, labor, and capital. And I think that's a very crucial uh, linchpin in understanding economics at this time. What is land? What is the role of capital? And what is the role of labor? Because those are the basic three elements of an economy. Many would write all of them as alike and substitutable, but you can't. Can you say, when there are models that say substitutability of capital and labor, can capital work by itself? No. Can labor without machinery and finances work on their own? No, there is an interaction, but there is no real substitution to talk about. It's good to brace the monetarist model, where you have on one hand, I think it's a very popular model, money supply times the velocity equals income, or the income is the amount of goods produced times the price. Velocity is the, number, the turnover of the money. Now, it would be very difficult to perceive it on a theoretical model, but let's put it on a personal level. Let's say... You earn $120,000 in a year. That's your money supply times velocity. Is that how often you earn it or how often you spend it? Well, it's like 120000 you don't earn it in one go. You receive a certain amount 52 times. Okay. So you have 120000 in the end, which you can use to buy goods you need at a certain price. And that's, say, money is in circulation. But let's say um, you've got a credit card and... If you use it properly and live within your means, within $120,000, you don't pay extra. 
let's assume it's a good credit card company that doesn't charge you fees because it earns interest from providing sales to the customers. So there's no effect. But what if you start borrowing more than what you earn? Then you start paying interest fees, right? And so the prices of the goods and services you buy go up. And so you need to borrow more. And okay, let's say you may need to borrow. And this is what if the people you sell it to, the shops, start treating your credit capacity as income. So they try to sell you more and you end up borrowing more until you find out, hey, my income is not enough to pay for the debt. And before they know it, they achieve this state of debt overhang and my income is no longer able to service the debt. Or worse, what if he loses his job altogether and finds out, I've got a mountain of debt that I really can't pay at all. And suddenly they'll be foreclosing a car, which I would need to find a new job. Now I can't find a job because they're foreclosing on my car. And that's pretty much a problem of many countries, not just individuals, but companies as well. So using that model on an individual, corporate, and even country level works, if it's understood that way. So that seems to be the the hole that a lot of people and corporations have dug themselves into. And that's just a monetary model. Very simple. You can gather statistics about it, run a regression to find out the the right amount of credit, actually, that has to be used so it doesn't exceed income and reaches a system of stability. So is a stimulus the answer? Because that's what all the world's governments are doing. A stimulus that would respond to unmet needs would be the best kind of package. If you're giving people money that they don't need and they look for ways of spending it, it it just might run out. It could be considered a simple leakage because okay, let's say I need it for health, but instead because I've got money and I'm, I can choose to spend on it, I can buy more grog and hurt my liver some more. And once I run out of money, how do I take care of my liver? So a stimulus package is good as long as it is aimed at unmet economic needs. If it were aimed at, let's say, I lost my job and I want to look for a new job or a new economic activity that will in, in turn help uh, the, the economy, then probably it would be best to be used in retraining or even more efficient headhunting, even for temporary jobs, just as long as it tides him through. So that would be a proper way of developing uh, stimulus packages. Go to where there is an unmet need that will help perk up the economy. There's a conundrum right now that many are complaining that real estate prices are falling, but rent, rent, rent is going up. Isn't that mysterious? When values of real estate go down, the rent should also be reduced because it, apparently it's not earning. If it was a free market. And it is. It, 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 is a, it is a market. I wouldn't want to use the term free, but it's a designed market. Hmm. And here's how it's designed. And here's the explanation of the, this phenomenon. Uh, because uh, households can't afford to meet mortgage payments, they are evicted. And because they're evicted and the foreclosed properties are not let out for rent, the evicted households now compete for the existing scarce rent markets, and that drives up rent rates because it, the, the market is assigned that excludes houseless, homeless families or occupants access to what could have 
earned rent. The, the mysterious thing is, if only, uh, and here's a criti- my critique also of, uh, let's say, Obama's uh, uh, stimulus package, rescue package of the companies, what, what would have made more sense was if he gave more conditions for the rehab pact, something, something that has to perk up the economy and meet uh, needs that are unmet. What he could have done was, okay, uh, since the financial companies call real estate portfolios as toxic, and they're toxic because the, the banks and financial institutions have to spend on the upkeep and maintenance of the properties as, in order for it, the value not to further deteriorate. Uh, I'll take those assets, along with the liabilities, which are probably bigger than the value of assets right now. And I would put it in what you'd call something like a national land and housing trust. And then open these houses, this real estate, to people who are willing to rent at rate rents that are affordable. And what would that do? It would start generating a cash flow for this for these uh, toxic assets. And once it starts generating a cash flow, it now generates a revenue. Once it generates a revenue, you now establish a greater value for it, and the government can get its money back faster. Than it had, than it could have if it simply provided a rescue package with no strings attached. So we should be renting out the empty houses that are being abandoned by all the people who can't afford yeah, their mortgages. That would be the best way to do it. Uh, there's an unmet need. Generate revenue, generate value, and everyone's happy. All right. So we've talked about uh, capital investments. We've talked about land. Now the third. A resource would be labor. What Australia's experienced in the past decade is really, uh, well, the controversy on work choices and the IRA. What is the philosophy behind it? The political philosophy is, I've heard is we've got to be competitive industry-wise vis-a-vis other countries that are cost-competitive like China in particular in order to a- a- attract Investments so that we can generate the jobs that are needed in the economy. Here's the interesting thing. In 2007, when you look at the superannuation generated by how many millions of Australian workers, probably 18 or, or less, it was as big as the gross international reserves of China, which were the biggest in the world, but took how many hundreds of millions of Chinese to generate. So what you, we have really in Australia is a highly productive labor force that generates the capital it needs. So it's like why maybe the advantage isn't to create a cost-competitive advantage, but to use the leverage against that highly productive labor force of Australia to generate the capital it needs and meet the, its needs at home rather than attract foreign investments to generate the jobs it needs. It's like why also privatize uh, government enterprises to foreigners when uh, patrons and local Australians can actually provide the capital through patronage. They can credit their patronage to their super and say, we want to exercise our rights as, as owners in the corporate governance of these enterprises rather than privatize it to foreign investors or even corporate interests. Uh, that would actually strengthen the, the democracy of, uh, of Australia if it were done that way. So uh, that's another way of looking at uh, perceiving in a proper context what labor, what the role of labor is. It's not a political constituency by which you gain votes by providing jobs, but no, actually harnessing the productive and economic power of labor for it to 
respond to their own needs. So that's the science of economics. Thank you, Geoffrey. Oh, you're welcome. Reasonable government guidelines. Now that's okay. We don't mind if the government has its fair say. But too much control now that just gets in the way. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Mark West returns with climate scientist Dr Ben McNeil to talk about the science of climate change and what policies the science should lead to. We could have an economic downturn and it could be as bad as the Depression and last Mm. 10, 20 years or however long, but, but climate change is going to be with us well, for the forever, really, if, if yeah, it all goes wrong. That's, it's true, and it's, it's interesting in the sense that um, it uh, takes crises to change things. Like, if you think of September 11, that one event, you know, really changed the face of the globe as we know it in the, in the term of, in, in the sense of foreign policy. And, you know, for example, the Iraq War, for example, that was a, you know, how many trillion dollars was spent on that mm. because of the precursor of a particular event, which was September 11. The problem really is for climate change is that it is, it is a long-term issue. Tomorrow is not going to be the end of the world, but it's going to be a, a sort of a uh, emerging crisis in the sense that there are all these things that are going to happen, but to link it back to a single event, you know, uh, in terms of our fossil fuel emissions, although the evidence is, is saying that's the, that's the case, because we can't observe it, it's hard to try and actually, uh, from a scientific point of view, sort of say, look, this is what's happening and we are actually uh, imposing these changes on us, you know, because it's quite diffuse, the issue, in the sense of it's a global issue. Yeah. I mean, it'd be a lot easier if, you know, as I say, with September 11, we know <laughs> who the perpetrators were and it was very easily linked to those particular perpetrators. But this is global in extent and you can't really, unfortunately in the science, you can't say, well... The cyclone that happened in Burma, which killed 200,000 people last year, and it was in, a, in an area which was in the low-lying lands, hundreds of millions of people were there. Even though there was a climate change fingerprint on that cyclone and the sea level that we've, that's already risen to 20 centimetres would have affected that community, it still can be easily taken as a natural event that, OK, this has always happened and... You know, it's not climate change. It's not new. Yeah. So it's, it's a hard thing to try and invoke change, given that it is a long-term crisis, and there's no easy way of attributing each of those events, even though they're massive and catastrophic, to human-induced climate change. So that's a problem in itself. Do you think running out of oil? Do you think peak oil would uh, would would help us? Would drive us into? Uh, well, that's for interesting solutions? because although. It seems that um, there's definitely a, um, a peak in conventional oil, in conventional oil supply. There's huge amounts of unconventional oil. That is, if you go back in, into, in World War II, the Germans actually perfected the, the technology of converting coal into oil because they didn't have much oil in Germany. I can't so imagine actually, that was clean. There's a, the, this coal-to-oil technology is taking off now. Well, I guess since the financial crisis, it, it hasn't gone... It's probably... The, the investment's gone downhill, but 
as we, if you remember that the oil prices were huge, um, you know, they were 150 bucks a barrel or whatever it is. But in long term, they'll, it'll go back to that level after we've we've um, emerged from the from this downturn. But I guess um, there are other technologies which are way more carbon intensive, is what I'm trying to say, than conventional oil. If <laughs> the question is, how can we avoid moving to a a worst case greenhouse intensity from the dwindling supplies of conventional oil? And the, the way to do that is you have to have a carbon price in the economy. So if you had a carbon price, then those more carbon-intensive forms of oil production, there would be no investment in there because the cost would be too high because we, we have assigned a value of carbon. We say in our society that um, greenhouse gas emissions are important and therefore there's no investment in that, in that end of the spectrum. So we'd move towards other forms of transportation. In particular, it would be uh, electrification is definitely the way to go because we know that we have massive amounts of clean low carbon sources to power up grids whereas we don't as yet have those sources for um for oil and later on this year in in copenhagen there are these international talks on climate change do you think that there's going to be an international agreement on on carbon tax or even yeah, on, I guess, on emissions? Um, it's really critical, this this uh, this international meeting, which is trying to negotiate a post-Kyoto Protocol convention on reducing carbon emissions from all the developed and developing economies, is really critical. And many people are quite pessimistic of, of what will be achieved just because it seems most of the leaders of the world are really quite um, focused on trying to resolve the the economic downturn it seems like this is this is a um, once in a lifetime sort of a event climate change has for the time being it seems like it's it's on sort of second fiddle and as i again it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about the short term versus long term here and i think it, it would be very wrong to to try and sidebar climate change just because we have a short-term economic downturn one of the things that have come out of the Obama administration is that actually they've seen that a rejuvenation of the economy from green technologies, from green infrastructure or low-carbon infrastructure is, is a way to get, it, to get them out of this downturn. So actually, in, a, in many ways, it could be seen as, um, uh, as an opportunity in the sense that governments can, are now putting forward stimulus packages in their, for their economies and that could be an, an added acceleration towards a, um, a low-carbon economic future and at the same time kickstart and create new jobs in a, a very harsh environment in terms of the economy nowadays. I did hear something interesting recently was that because of the economic downturn, there's less manufacturing. So the world's actually... Well, there's less emissions now than there were, say, a year ago. So yeah. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, they, there will be definitely, I mean, less, less uh, emissions because of the downturn, but I, I don't like to focus much on that. I mean, it's not economic growth that's the problem here. Yep, it's, yep. it's actually the, how we power our economic growth. Yep. You know, so if we de-linked, essentially what we need to do is de-link this, the, uh, the economic growth with the how we power us, you know, or how we power and manufacture things. People say, well, I guess this economic downturn is going to solve the issue. Well, it's not. Over the medium term, we're still going to be... Uh, growing emissions rapidly because we still have that link. We still are, in most parts of the world, we're still reliant heavily on coal and oil in particular. 
if we don't de-link the carbon out of this prosperity equation or the greenhouse out of this prosperity equation, then we'll continue to increase emissions, increase concentrations of, of, of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. So do you think that the, the Aussie government's 5% cut of emissions below 2,000 levels by 2020, do you think that's enough? It seems very conservative. Oh yes, there's two, the, the two main factors in them having a quite moderate or weak targets is really the down, this, this downturn. The economic downturn has, I think, scared many governments, and I think the Australian government's part of that. They've bought into the notion that reducing emissions is going to also cost jobs. That's the conventional theory that but some in the industry uh, and business will, will have us try and believe. But really, that's not the case. If, For example, if you, if you look at the UK, since 1990, they've reduced their emissions 20%. At the same time, they grew their economy at the same rate as Australia, so that they grew their economy beyond 60%. Yeah. So they reduced their emissions 20% and increased their economic growth by 60%. So this, this whole notion that somehow reducing emissions must mean we have to you know, cut back on things in terms of jobs, it's a, it's a complete myth yeah. um, from my point of view. And... But unfortunately, it's, it seems that the, the, that sort of notion has been really well embedded in the current political thought ever since, really, the previous U.S. administration. That's, that was their mantra. And, and actually, the previous Australian administration, that's all they used to say was, we're not going to do anything because it's going to cost, you know, cost jobs and jobs. cost the economy. That was Mark West chatting with Dr. Ben McNeil from the University of New South Wales about climate change policy. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions for more science athletics, or you'd just like to hear your own voice voicing some of the sexiest science stories, then send an email to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www. .diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program this week were Victoria Bond, Mark West and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Patrick Ruby. And join us inside your audio device of choice next time for more science wondering on Diffusion Science Radio. I figured it out. I figured it out. With a pencil and a pad, I figured it out. Seven and a half cents doesn't buy a heck of a lot. Seven and a half cents doesn't mean a thing. But give it to me every hour, 40 hours every week. That's enough for me to be living like a king. I figured it out. He figured it out. I figured it out. He figured it out. With a pencil and a pad, I figured it out. Only five years from today. Only five years from today. I can see it all before me, only five years from today. Five years. Now, let's see.
That's 260 weeks times 40 hours every week, and roughly two and a quarter hours overtime, and time and a half for overtime comes to exactly $852.74! That's enough for me to get! An automatic washing machine, a year's supply of gasoline, carpeting for the living room. A vacuum instead of a plastic room. Not to mention a 40-inch television set. So, although seven and a half cents doesn't buy a heck of a lot, seven and a half cents doesn't mean a thing. But give it to me every hour, 40 hours every week. That's enough for me to be living like a king. I she figured it out, she figured it out. I figured it out with the pencil and the pad. I figured it out. Only ten years from today. Only ten years from today. I can see it weeks, times 40 hours every week, and roughly two and a quarter hours overtime, a time and a half for overtime, comes to exactly $1,705.48! That's enough for me to buy a trip to France across the seas, a motorboat and water skis, and maybe even a foreign car. A charger caught at the corner bar. Not to mention a ping pong set with paddles made of gold. So, although I figured it out, In the Taj Mahal and every room a different doll I'll have myself a buying spree I'll buy a pajama factory Then I can end up having old man Hassler work for me So, although Seven and a half cents doesn't buy a heck of a lot Seven and a half cents doesn't mean a thing But give it to me every hour 